Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Oh, look at that. Uh, the loons did their thing. Now it's time for us to do ours. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Michael Brown, and this is Matthew Stockton. Is that your Looney Tune? My Looney Tune? Yeah, the loon singing. The loons are the Looney Tune. It's yeah. your Looney Tune. Yeah. And we kind of have a loony episode today. It's a little loony, and it's, you know, obviously... It's a murder, a couple of murders. We don't want to take away from that, but it, there's some weird stuff going on. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. In early March of 1946, John Dick, a 39-year-old streetcar conductor in Hamilton, Ontario, disappeared. Weeks later, five local children found John's torso on the city's outskirts. His head and limbs were missing. Suspicion soon fell on John's wife, Evelyn, who was arrested and charged with the murder. The pair had had a whirlwind courtship and had been married only months before John turned up dead. The investigation turned up more shocking and disturbing evidence indicating that John's death was not the only one. At Evelyn's trial, evidence emerged of her volatile relationship with her husband, multiple extramarital affairs, and allegations of other horrendous criminal activity. Despite her claims of innocence, Evelyn was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. Her story was not close to over. There was an appeal and she was granted a new trial. It would take a total of three trials before a conviction finally stuck. And after Evelyn was released on parole in 1958, she lived the rest of her life under an assumed name, never publicly speaking about her past. This is Dark Poutine episode 262, The Hamilton Torso Murder. How could you, Mrs. Dick?
Hamilton, Ontario in 1946 was a bustling industrial city in the heart of the Great Lakes region in Canada. The city was home to approximately 160,000 people and was known for its steel manufacturing industry. In addition, it was a central transportation hub with several railways and highways running through the city connecting it to other major Canadian cities and the United States. The city was also experiencing a post-war economic boom with many new businesses opening up and employment opportunities were increasing. This led to a surge in population growth. Okay. You know, I went to Hamilton. We've mentioned this before for school. Okay, yeah. Did, have you heard of the Golden Horseshoe? Is it a bar? <laughs> it sounds like a bar. It sounds like, sounds a, like bar. a bar. Yeah. No, so from Toronto, mm -hmm. um, dipping down underneath Lake Ontario, mm -hmm. like to the bottom, and then up again to Niagara is like a horseshoe shape. Of, of economic and, sort of boom. And something like 55% of Ontario's population. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's kind of the economic engine of the country in a lot of ways. That's really cool. Yeah. I had not heard it called that, obviously, because I'm not from there or yeah. it didn't Golden come up horseshoe. in my, my geography class. You can tell history. it was also, it, the first quote of it was like 90, it's a very 1950s term, isn't it? The Golden yeah. Horseshoe. The Golden Horseshoe. Well, it sounds <laughs> earlier than that. Hamilton did have its problems. Crime rates were relatively high, and some sectors of the city's economy had organized crime and corruption issues. The city was also known for its seedy entertainment districts with bars, clubs, and other establishments that were popular with locals and visitors. It was against this backdrop that what became known as the Torso Murder Case, the murder of John Dick, took place. It captured the city's attention then the provinces, and spread quickly into the rest of the country via newspaper and radio reports. The general public lusted after the details of the gruesome crime and the beautiful young woman accused of the murder, Dick's wife of less than a year, Evelyn. Evelyn Dick was born to Donald and Alexander McLean on October 13, 1920. A year after her birth in Beamsville, near Niagara Falls, the family moved to 214 Roslyn Avenue in Hamilton. Donald McLean worked for the Hamilton Street Railway as a streetcar conductor. Donald Scotty McLean was known to be unfriendly and insisted that Evelyn stay away from other children in their new neighborhood. Donald's alcoholism, angry ranting, and violent tendencies made for a miserable childhood and unhappy family life for young Evelyn. From her early childhood, Evelyn slept in her mother Alexandra's bed. It was not clear why the little girl slept with her mom, but speculative sources indicate it was for safety from drunken and unpredictable Donald McLean. Despite his unpleasant demeanor and chronic drinking habit, Donald McLean advanced within the Hamilton Street Railway Company, eventually obtaining an office job with a higher salary. From that point, the McLean family enjoyed a fairly lavish lifestyle, which Donald's increased salary alone did not fully explain. Evelyn's mother, Alexandra, wasn't much better than her husband, Donald. She too was prone to violent outbursts fueled by her staunch religious beliefs and high expectations, which, in Alexandra's opinion, young Evelyn was not at times trying hard enough to attain. Evelyn was confused. She was alternatively doted on by her parents for her beauty, then viciously scolded and punished for the slightest perceived transgression. Her parents often put her in the middle of verbal and sometimes physical arguments, using their daughter as a pawn. After particularly nasty fights, Alexandra left Donald, 
with Evelyn in tow more than once. Mother and daughter always returned to Donald, though, unable to make ends meet independently. That must have really caused havoc for Evelyn. Yeah. Sort of emotionally, psychologically. Yeah. I've known some adult kids of alcoholic parents, mm -hmm. right? And often, if you don't sort of get a little bit of head shrinking out of that, yeah, you know, you can have in your adult life sort of substance abuse problems yourself or relationship difficulties yeah. or self-esteem issues. Well, alcoholism is a family disease. It's like you have, I mean, this is something I'm kind of an expert on, <laughs> uh, but if somebody in the family is affected by alcoholism, the drinker, the rest of the family is affected by that behavior Definitely. as well. So yeah, and it makes people sick. It makes the whole family really sick. Mm. Donald McLean was a longstanding assistant in the Hamilton Street Railway Company, HSR, cashier's office where he had earned the trust of his colleagues. However, it later became clear that he'd indulged in shady business practices for years. Using his access to the fare boxes, Donald had been stealing both money and tickets, which he sold at bargain prices on the side. The company later calculated that his total haul over the years amounted to more than $200,000, a small fortune in those days. Unfortunately, this did not come to light until after his daughter was arrested for John Dick's murder years later, although speculation existed. The McLeans wanted their daughter to climb as high as possible on the social ladder in their community, so Don's ill-gotten gains paid Evelyn's tuition to the most exclusive and prestigious private school in Hamilton, the Loretto Academy. The school was run by the Sisters of the Institute of the Blessed Virgin Mary, commonly known as the Loretto Sisters, it sounds like a band, hmm. who were dedicated to educating young women from the city and surrounding areas. Catholic school, never turn your back on a nun. I've heard that. I, I didn't go to Catholic school and there wasn't one in my hometown, hmm. so I didn't hear about Catholic schools and the horrors of said... My husband went to one. Oh, did he? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. And was his experience good? He's the one who said to me, never turn your back on him. Well, there you go. <laughs> Loretto Academy was known for its high academic standards and rigorous curriculum, emphasizing traditional subjects such as math and science, religious studies, and character development. The school offered classes from kindergarten to grade 13 and had a reputation for preparing its students well for university. The school was in a large, impressive building on the corner of St. James and Barton Streets, featuring beautiful architecture and spacious classrooms. The campus also included a chapel, library, science lab, and gymnasium, providing students with well-rounded education and various extracurricular activities. Many of the school's graduates went on to successful careers in various fields, including medicine, law, and education. Today, the original land that housed Loretto Academy has been repurposed as a community center. Still, the school's legacy and impact on generations of young women in Hamilton live on. Evelyn Dick is far and away the most notorious of all the school's alumni. Alexandra saw the school as an opportunity for Evelyn to rub shoulders with people of higher social standing, the city's elite. However, many other girls at the school didn't like Evelyn. There was just something about her. She didn't seem trustworthy or honest. Evelyn wouldn't look you in the eye when she was regaling others with sometimes fantastic stories rife with obvious embellishments, making her peers wary of her. 
Evelyn was notorious for throwing lavish, intimate parties at the most glamorous venues in town where she would entertain small groups of classmates and their boyfriends. These events were nothing short of opulent, with no expense spared in the hopes of gaining the favor of her peers. In addition, she shamelessly attempted to buy their friendship with expensive gifts, such as silver compacts for the girls and cigarette cases for the boys, all in the name of social acceptance. You know, maybe it's no surprise uh, with her home life that she ended up doing this. Yeah. You know, her parents seem to, like the, you said earlier, they talk about how um, you know they uh, she was beautiful and they do it on her for that, but then be horrible with her and then give her gifts. Yeah. And maybe that's, she sort of learned that that's how you show love or get a relationship is, is by doing that. Yeah. She learned it from somewhere. Yeah. Evelyn was always dressed to the nines, even wearing expensive fur coats to high school, which none of her truly more affluent classmates did. Evelyn was all about the flash. Don McLean also provided Evelyn with a brand new yellow Pontiac convertible to drive herself around the city another source of envy for her classmates. A man named Ross Hugh, then a boy in Hamilton, recalled thinking Evelyn looked like a movie star in her fancy dresses driving around in her expensive car. If the girls didn't like Evelyn, the boys certainly did, and rumors about her promiscuity started in her final years at high school. According to the rumors, Evelyn's mother had encouraged her to seek out wealthy older men to improve the family's social and financial status, However, Evelyn was not limited to the company of older men alone. She also enjoyed hanging out with young athletic men around her own age. There were also rumors that Evelyn was attending wild sex parties where she would allegedly have sexual intercourse with numerous partners. Some of those rumored to be much older and perhaps even involved in high society Hamilton. Some labeled her a nymphomaniac an outdated derogatory term to describe a woman with sexual with excessive sexual desires. However, today's healthcare providers no longer use this term and instead refer to hypersexual behavior as hypersexuality disorder, compulsive sexual behavior, or sex addiction. These terms are inclusive and can be applied to individuals of any gender. Or maybe some people are just good at sex and like to get laid. There could be that, too. I mean, I, I tell you, Mike, in my 20s and 30s, mm -hmm. if sex were an Olympic sport, I would have won the gold. Right. Sex addiction does exist. I mean, yeah. you know, I know it exists, but... Uh, <laughs> but sometimes people are just having fun. I was I was not an Olympian. No? <laughs> no. No, nowhere near Olympic level. I was I was more... Uh, I was a hobbyist. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I would have been on that podium. <laughs> of course you would. Hamilton's well-oiled rumor mill was abuzz with speculation about Evelyn, who provided plenty of fodder for the town's gossips. But in 1942, the rumors reached a fever pitch when it was revealed that the 21-year-old beauty was pregnant. As her figure began to change, the town was captivated by the mystery of the child's father, whom Evelyn claimed was a Cleveland-born United States naval officer named Norman White, serving overseas in World War II. Evelyn claimed she and White had secretly married, yet no one had heard of the marriage, nor of the mysterious Mr. White. Evelyn welcomed her daughter, Heather Maria White, into the world on June 10, 1942, but her supposed husband was nowhere to be found. Tragically, the child was born with intellectual disabilities requiring much extra care from her mother and grandparents. This added to the complexity of Evelyn's already turbulent life. 
With the mysterious Mr. White supposedly overseas, it shocked everyone in town when Evelyn McLean became pregnant yet again. This second pregnancy tragically resulted in a stillborn daughter in 1943. However, before the end of the year, Evelyn was pregnant again. On September 5, 1944, Evelyn gave birth to a seemingly healthy baby boy, Peter David White, and there was still no sign of the elusive Mr. White. As whispers and speculation spread throughout the town, the burning questions remained. How could Evelyn's pregnancies be explained and where was her supposed husband? The mystery only deepened and the answers seemed more elusive. Only days after the child's birth, when Alexandra asked to see little Peter, Evelyn reportedly told her mother that the children's aid people had taken her newborn son from her and that a more stable family had adopted him. As adoptions were closed, Alexandra, although sad, thought there was nothing to be done at that point. It was just as well. Evelyn was now claiming that Norman White, whom no one had ever met nor heard of, had died during the war. It seems really weird to me that her son just disappeared and her mother didn't know and she just said she's ad he was adopted. Yeah. Like, or, there's no more questions about it. Did Children's Aid really come for him? Uh, we'll find that out later. Okay. Evelyn returned to partying and again began to pop up around Hamilton's social scene just like nothing had ever happened. Children? What children? Evelyn's mother and others who knew her were shocked when in the late summer of 1945, Evelyn announced she would marry a man she'd only just met, 38-year-old John Dick, a tram driver with HSR. At her father's workplace in the HSR, Evelyn, young Heather in tow, first met John Dick. John asked about Heather's father and learned the beautiful young woman with the lovely little girl was a war widow. John was immediately smitten. John Dick was kind to Heather, and this caught Evelyn's attention, sparking a flirtatious attraction between them. Evelyn claimed she was drawn to John for his kindness and the lavish gift he showered upon her. Within a month of being together, Evelyn had made the shocking announcement to her mother that she would marry John Dick. It was a whirlwind romance, but the question lingered. Was it love or was something else going on? Alexandra disapproved. She thought Evelyn could do much better, considering the circles the pretty young social climber traveled in. To Alexandra, John Dick was a step down for Evelyn. He was beneath what Alexandra believed her daughter deserved, but for some reason, Evelyn was resolute. Her desire to marry John Dick was unshakable. Why? Do you think she did it just to vex her parents? Just to kind of two fingers up at them? Or? I, I think that might have been part of it. Or what I read about Evelyn also, and have already stated, she was a social climber and a bit of a gold digger. And she believed that he had a lot of shares in the canning company right. that, that his in-laws owned. So let's forge forth from that one. Okay. Evelyn's parents both so disapproved of Dick that they didn't attend the small wedding ceremony on October 4, 1945. Alexander couldn't help but wonder about her daughter's relationship with John, still wondering what happened to William Bill Bohosik, a Hamilton steelworker with whom Evelyn had been involved. Theirs had been an on-and-off-again relationship for years before her sudden marriage announcement. Alexander was unaware that Bill and Evelyn had stopped seeing each other. John Dick had seemingly come out of nowhere. And who the heck was this guy? John Dick was born in Russia on May 25, 1906, and his family, whose name was spelled D-Y-C-K, had come to Canada when John was still in his teens. Presumably, for the ease of spelling, 
John had dropped the Y in favor of an I in his surname when he came to Hamilton. Although he wasn't involved in the business, John Dick's family was well-known as wealthy fruit growers and canners. John Dick's two sisters, Anna and Lena, were both married to brothers from the Wall family, John and Jake. The Wall brothers and their wives, along with John, Anna, and Lena's mother, lived together on a farm in Beamsville, Ontario. The family earned their living as fruit farmers with an older brother, Peter Wall, owning a canning factory in Niagara-on-the-Lake that employed 200 individuals by 1942. John Dick owned a small stake of shares in the company. Perhaps this was the lure that attracted Evelyn. However, it also could have been the simple desire to legitimize her lifestyle and stem the gossip about her and her kids. The couple had been married for nearly a month before they began living together. Evelyn used the excuse that there wasn't enough space for all of them in the small apartment where she had been residing with her mother and daughter Heather, so John waited for Evelyn to find a larger place. In the meantime, they'd begun arguing, often about money, John's attention to other women, and Evelyn's attention to other men. The couple was able to cohabitate when Evelyn purchased a home on Carrick Avenue. John's name was absent from the mortgage. It was believed that he had contributed none of the initial deposit money, further deepening the enigma surrounding their unusual arrangement and making people wonder, where on earth did Evelyn get that cash? John moved in on October 31st, Halloween, after the purchase was finalized, but things went south quickly. Only five days later, John caught Evelyn in a lie, a really big one. She'd been out all night, and John had discovered it had been with Bill Bohozik. Their relationship had not ended after all. By Christmas Eve of 1945, John had moved out of Evelyn's house and began boarding with his cousin. Well, that's a pretty quick marital breakdown. Right. So she probably quickly discovered that John Dick didn't have the money that she thought he did. Well, there's a lesson to be learned there. What? If you're a gold digger, yeah. do your homework. Do your homework. <laughs> Yes, make sure that this guy isn't just telling you a tale. Yeah, he he could have been telling her he was worth more. Yeah, yeah, I have like own half the company, right? He has like three dollars in shares. Yeah, exactly. Desperate for help with Evelyn, John Dick turned to her father, Donald McLean. However, McLean flatly refused to get involved, so Dick resorted to a more drastic measure. He threatened to expose the McLean family's dirty secret of stealing from the HSR, which Evelyn had divulged to him. This threat sparked a fierce response from McLean, who threatened to take matters into his own hands and kill Dick. A few months later, on March 6, 1946, John failed to come to work, and his cousins, Alexander and Annie Kammerer, with whom he'd been living, reported him missing on March 7th when he didn't come home. Although the Hamilton Police Department initially considered the possibility of foul play, they also entertained the notion that the missing man, despite his upstanding reputation, may have run away from his problems. However, their speculations were soon interrupted by an anonymous phone call on March 12th from a woman who claimed that John Dick had absconded with money and tickets belonging to the Hamilton Street Railway. The call added a new layer of intrigue to an already murky investigation. Only four days later, ten days after John had disappeared, five children, out for a fun day on the Hamilton Escarpment, made a horrifying discovery. More after a quick break. 
I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts on this weirdness so far? Everyone is up to shenanigans, aren't they? Yeah. Like there, there's a little bit of dirt on everyone here. Oh, for sure. Right? Yeah. It's quite a motley crew of characters. It really is. <laughs> I, I mean, there's been a movie about it, but I don't think, I think there could be a really excellent dark comedy okay. made about yeah. this. Like it would be a really dark comedy. It'd be a very dark comedy. Yeah. War of the Roses kind of thing. <laughs> Saturday, March 16, 1947, was shaping up to be a fine day, so five kids from the west end of the city decided it was a perfect time for a hike along the Hamilton Escarpment. The escarpment is a prominent natural feature that runs through the city. The escarpment is a long, steep ridge that rises abruptly from the surrounding landscape, forming a dramatic backdrop to the city's urban core. It is part of the Niagara Escarpment, a geological formation stretching from New York to Wisconsin and marking the Niagara Peninsula's edge. The Hamilton Escarpment is characterized by its thick forest cover, steep cliffs, and numerous waterfalls. It is a popular destination for hikers, cyclists, and nature enthusiasts who come to Hamilton to explore the many trails and conservation areas that dot the escarpment. Locals call it the mountain. The mountain. As I did. Okay, you called it the mountain too. Yeah, when yeah. I lived there. And then I moved to BC. Yeah, and then you see what a real mountain. Oh, how quaint. <laughs> yeah. I think the escarpment was created by glaciers pushing. Sure. And then stopping. Yep. Right, so that's sort of where they stopped. Interesting. Yeah, because there's sudden, suddenly the ground is higher, right? The escarpment also plays a vital role in Hamilton's history and culture. It has long been a source of inspiration for artists and writers and has been the subject of numerous paintings, photographs, and literary works. In addition, the escarpment is home to several significant cultural and historical sites, including the Royal Botanical Gardens, Bruce Trail, and the Dundurn Castle National Historic Site. You're bringing me back, Mike. Oh, really? Yeah, to like the, the late 80s. Okay. Yeah, so it also, the escarpment is also home to my college. Oh, yeah, there <laughs> it, it, it was up there. But for our Euro listeners, mm -hmm. because everyone's painting a picture, I'm sure, in their head of this uh, Dundurn Castle. Right? Sure. It's a manor house. Okay. Right? <laughs> and I don't know why, but for some reason in Canada, we love calling just any old sort of nice, but yeah. big manor house type things, castles. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, not a castle. There's no turrets, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the Royal Botanical Gardens are lovely up there as well. I love a good garden. Yeah. Uh, I plan on going to Van Dusen, I think, in the upcoming week, yeah. if it doesn't rain, because, you know, things are starting to bloom there. Oh, we're old. Why? We like gardens and gardening centers. I've always loved gardens, but okay. I like taking pictures and, and that kind of thing. Jimmy Weaver, at 12... The oldest of the group of buddies who were hiking that day proposed a hike to Albion Falls. They'd taken their lunches along to make a day of it. Their little gang that day included Jimmy's younger brothers, Robert, 10, and 9-year-old Fred. 
Tagging along were David Reed, 11, and his little sister, 8-year-old Faith. The younger boys had left Mountain Brow Road and gone into the gully around 20 feet into the brush. They were only briefly out of sight when they ran back up the hill and screamed for the others to see what they'd discovered. They claimed to have found a dead man, or at least part of one. Ooh, I've been to Albion Falls a bunch of times. Yeah. It's odd to think I might have stood exactly where his body was found. Oof. Do you think anyone's ever died in this apartment, Mike? Oh, stop it. <laughs> According to Marjorie Freeman Campbell's book, Torso, The Evelyn Dick Case, Jimmy later testified, quote, We went down east of the rock that was kind of steep there, and we grabbed the trees to help ourselves down. I saw the remains of a body lying below the rock. It was on the ground on somewhat of a slant, lying on its stomach, and the part where its neck would be was heading toward the bottom of the hill. On the ground, there was some leaves and old limbs all around it, and a rock up where the legs would be. Jimmy's testimony continued. It was clothed in a ripped undershirt, and it looked as if there were a pair of shorts on it, too. After poking at the body a bit, the traumatized kids decided to run back up the hill and stretched across Mountain Brow Road hand in hand to stop the first car that came along. Apparently Jimmy had learned that in Boy Scouts. The car's driver went for help and the police soon arrived to investigate the grisly find. I think at eight years old, I'd probably poke a body with a stick as well. Me too. <laughs> like, I kind of was like, ew, but then I'm like, they're kids. I probably would have given a few little pokes. Yeah, because you don't, you're, you're not sure, like... That's not something a child would have ever seen. Yeah. Like a whole body mm. probably would have freaked them out more, weirdly. Yeah. They thought it was a pig at first, okay. apparently. So because they're trying to figure it out, weren't they? Yeah, because they had seen pig carcasses had it had yeah. been rolled down over that mountain before. Right, or if so. you'd been to a butcher or anything before. Sure. Yeah. The body's arms, legs, and head had been removed crudely. It was clear to the pathologist, Dr. William J. Deadman and the other two men present at the autopsy, coroner Dr. Isaac E. Crack and Inspector Charles Wood of the Criminal Investigation Branch of Toronto, that whoever had performed the dismemberment was not experienced, not a butcher, not a medical professional. The abdomen had a deep and wide gash that appeared to have been an attempt to cut the body into smaller pieces, but was left incomplete. Furthermore, there were two bullet wounds in the torso that would not have been fatal. Investigators surmised the fatal shot had most likely been to the head, which was missing. Can I just stop you there? Sure. The pathologist's name is Deadman? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Do you, you know what that's called? It's, it's nominative determinism. Okay. So it's a hypothesis that people tend to gravitate towards work that fits their name. Yes. So if you think of like Usain Bolt, the runner, right? right. He bolts. William Wordsworth, the poet. Right, yeah. Judge Law, the retired American judge. And I worked with a man who was the master blender at Johnny Walker, and his name was Jim Beveridge. Of course it was. Isn't that great? Yeah. And I think maybe, Mike, you got into podcasting because your last name is Mike, and you speak in a mic. So this reminds me of a knock-knock joke that my dad, obviously, used to tell <laughs> me. Knock-knock. Who's there? Mike. Mike who? Microphone. That's not even funny. <laughs> no. <laughs> do, you, do you think you created go shit in your hat because your last name is Brown? It could be. <laughs> your dad had really bad jokes, man. Oh, his jokes were terrible. <laughs> the day after the body was discovered, 
A group of workmen stumbled upon a blood-stained and battered shirt about seven miles southeast of where the kids had found the torso. A Hamilton Civics Work Department employee discovered the shirt, which appeared to have been discarded near the road. The garment had been tampered with. Both sleeves were cut off, and two holes were in the shirt's body, closely matching the locations of the bullet holes found on the as-yet-unidentified torso. On March 18th, John Wall, who'd been married to John Dick's sister, received a strange phone call from someone claiming to be Evelyn Dick. After some back and forth as Evelyn tried to establish which Wall brother she was talking to, she asked John Wall if he knew where John Dick was. Wall said he didn't know. This was when the conversation took an odd turn. Evelyn said to John Wall, quote, He owes here about $500 to different people, and a lady he owed $75 sued him and he should appear at court this week before last, on Thursday, and he never showed up. So the judge gave the order to look him up, and the police searched whole Hamilton and couldn't find him. And he even took the company's money along with him. Now they try to collect the money from me, and I haven't got no money, end quote. On the morning of the 19th of March, a newspaper article described the torso. According to authorities, the dismembered body found was believed to be that of a man around 5 foot 10 inches tall and weighing between 170 to 185 pounds. The victim was assumed to have fair hair and was wearing full-length buttonless combination underwear made of mixed wool and cotton with the brand name Harvey Woods PDQ and elastic at the neck and back, size 44. The shirt found near the body though not confirmed to belong to the victim, was described as a blue-striped Ford and brand shirt made of print material, size 15 and a half. The description stood out to John Dick's cousins, Alexander and Annie Kemmerer. John had lived with them at Gertrude Street in Hamilton for five weeks before his disappearance on March 6th. Alexander later indicated that something seemed to have been bothering John, but he declined to discuss it. Alexander identified the body as John Dick thanks to one unique feature that whoever butchered the body had overlooked. John Dick only had one testicle in his scrotum. The other had never descended and had remained inside his body since childhood. When police informed Evelyn that John Dick had been found and was deceased, she said, Don't look at me. I don't know anything about it. Evelyn, of course, was brought in for an interview. She was charged with Section A of the Vagrancy Act to keep her in custody, a tactic often used by police at the time, since abolished. As investigators questioned Evelyn regarding John Dick's disappearance, they searched her house. Police found more than they'd bargained for when they searched Evelyn's home, as the evidence pointed to more than one victim in the family. Investigators discovered a trunk in the attic containing a beige suitcase filled with concrete. Upon breaking open the concrete, they found the body of Evelyn's infant son, Peter David, whom she had previously claimed was given up for adoption. An autopsy on the child's remains indicated that he'd been murdered by strangulation. Oh, no. I kind of wanted children's aid to have taken him away. Yeah. Oh, that's sad. Things got weirder. Alexandra McLean, Evelyn's mother, informed the police that she'd recently seen Donald McLean, Evelyn's father, near the trunk in which the suitcase had been found, and she'd been shooed away for being nosy. The police searched Donald's house and found bullet holes in a pipe, a revolver with cartridges, spent bullet casings, saws, and blood-stained shoes like those belonging to John Dick, 
In addition, burnt fragments of human bone and teeth were found scattered in the dirt in the alley behind Evelyn's house. Subsequent searches of Evelyn's residence and her parents' home yielded scraps from a torn HSR uniform as well. A necktie that belonged to John Dick was also discovered. Evelyn had borrowed a car, a large Packard, from a man named Bill Landig on the day that John Dick disappeared. When she returned the vehicle, its interior had been splashed with blood. Evelyn explained this with a note saying her daughter Heather had been horsing around in the car and had severely cut herself. Every time Evelyn spoke to the police, her story changed to fit the new evidence. Cops knew they were not getting the straight facts in the case. First, she claimed that an unknown Italian hitman had been looking for John because he was having an affair with his wife. The man, she said, had told her that he was going to, quote, fix John. Evelyn then said another man had told her that John would be punished for impregnating an unknown woman. The man asked to borrow a car from Evelyn and gave Evelyn a package containing parts of John, which she helped him to dispose of at the dumping sites. She said that Bill Bohozik, her boyfriend, had hired Italian hitmen to murder John and that he had been shot near Glanford using a gun belonging to Evelyn's father, Donald, the one they'd found in his house. When confronted with the new evidence regarding the discovery of her infant son's body, Evelyn accused Bill Bohozik of killing the child and John Dick. As Evelyn had implicated her father and Bill Bohozik, all three were charged with the crimes. In a strategic move, Evelyn's lawyers requested a separate trial from Bohozik and McLean. They aimed to portray Evelyn as an innocent and alluring young woman incapable of murder. The series of trials commenced on October 7, 1946, at the Wentworth County Courthouse in Hamilton. By this time, the nation had become obsessed with the case. According to the Toronto Star newspaper, quote, Local schoolchildren judged Evelyn to be guilty long before her trial was over and began skipping to a song which went, You cut off his legs, you cut off his arms, you cut off his head. How could you, Mrs. Dick? How could you, Mrs. Dick? <laughs> Kids are brilliant. They really are. <laughs> How could you, Mrs. Dick? <laughs> right. Well, the double entendre there is... I don't want to say delicious, but anyway, it, what it is, uh, you know, that's how he was identified. That's so funny. Hmm. It's funny and very dark. I like it dark. Oh, boy. Alexander McLean, Evelyn's mother, testified against her daughter for the crown in exchange for immunity. Alexander claimed that Evelyn had been absent from the home on the last day John Dick was seen alive. When Alexander questioned her daughter about Dick's whereabouts, Evelyn said that he would no longer be coming around, and Alexander also revealed that her husband owned a handgun and a large butcher's knife. Evelyn testified on her own behalf and came up with many more theories about what had happened. Despite that, the jury of 12 men remained unconvinced and on October 16, 1946, found her guilty of killing her husband. There was only one sentence for murder in those days, so Justice F. H. Barlow's sentencing was swift and severe. He said, quote, Evelyn Dick, the sentence of this court upon you is that you shall be taken here to the place whence you came and there be kept in close confinement until the seventh day of January in the year 1947, and upon that date you shall be taken to the place of execution and that you shall there be hanged by the neck until you are dead. 
may the Lord have mercy upon your soul. End quote. I find it incredible that execution was the only, only judgment you could pass at that time. The only sentence? The only sentence, sorry. I mean, yeah. I mean, she could have been convicted of manslaughter, which was yeah. uh, a less sentence. So yeah, it's like murder was murder and the sentence was death at the time here in Canada. And I always find it funny when they say hang by the neck until you are dead. In, yeah. In case there's any question that now we're just going to hang you there and like Christmas decoration for a while, <laughs> then take you down. It's terrible. <laughs> Following her conviction for the murder of John Dick, Evelyn's new attorney, famed Canadian lawyer John J. Robinette, took over the case. Robinette filed a petition with the Ontario Court of Appeal, arguing that the police had obtained statements from Evelyn while she was only charged with vagrancy. As a result, she had not been appropriately warned that her words could be used against her in a murder trial. Good. Yeah. Now, I don't have a lot of sympathy for her. Yeah. Right? But, um... I, the law is the law. The law is the law. And and if you don't stamp down those sort of tricky ways that police do things like that, they'd only get worse, right? Right. On January 17, 1947, the Ontario Court of Appeal unanimously set aside Evelyn's conviction and ordered a retrial. The second trial began on February 24, 1947, with Evelyn being tried alone. This time, her statements to the police were excluded from the evidence. During the trial, J.J. Robinette argued that the Crown's evidence pointed to Donald McLean as the real killer and that while Evelyn may have been aware of the murder and possibly even been an accessory after the fact, there was not enough to convict her of murder. Robinette even told the jury that, quote, one would not hang a dog on the evidence presented by the Crown. The jury ultimately agreed with Robinette's arguments and on March 6, 1947, Evelyn was acquitted of John Dick's murder. Evelyn returned to the Wentworth County Courthouse on the 24th of March, 1947, for her third and final trial, this time for the murder of her infant son, Peter White. Throughout the trial, her lawyer, John J. Robinette, emphasized that all the evidence against his client was circumstantial and highlighted her role as a struggling single mother to four-year-old Heather. Despite the defense's efforts, the jury returned a guilty verdict on the lesser charge of manslaughter on March 25th. The following day, psychiatrist Robert Finlayson took the stand. He testified that he had evaluated Evelyn and determined that she had, quote, a mental age of 13 and an IQ in the low 80s. He described her as, quote, immature and unreliable person incapable of resisting pressure from her surroundings, end quote. The judge then sentenced Evelyn to life imprisonment the maximum sentence for a manslaughter conviction to be served at the Kingston Prison for Women. Evelyn's mental state and IQ would continue to be a subject of debate and speculation in the years following her conviction, with some arguing that she indeed had an intellectual disability and others questioned the validity of the test used to evaluate her. I have to say she comes across as way more intelligent than that to me. Yeah. And I probably wouldn't rely on those sorts of tests in the 1940s. Well, sure. Right? <laughs> but I guess they were the only tests that they had at the time. Yeah, I mean, you got to start somewhere. But, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, let's go from, it's a blonde hair, the blonde did it. Eventually, we got to DNA, right? <laughs> yeah. Bill Bohosik was acquitted as Evelyn, the only witness against him, refused to testify. Mm. Donald McLean admitted to being an accessory after the fact in the murder of John Dick and pleaded guilty to the charge. 
He admitted to having helped Evelyn take Dick's body up onto the escarpment where they'd rolled him down into the gully. As a result, he was sentenced to serve five years in the Kingston pen. So there are some interesting questions that have never been answered about this case. Most pressingly, who killed John Dick? Mm. This is unsolved. Well, officially. (laughs) Where was Evelyn's money coming from? It was not her father. His thefts from the HSR would not have covered her lavish lifestyle. Who'd given Evelyn the money for the down payment for her house, for example? Who'd paid the $150,000 for J.J. Robinette to save Evelyn from the hangman? That's a lot of cake in those days. Some, including the author Brian Valley, who wrote Torso Murder, The Untold Story of Evelyn Dick, think that it may have been someone prominent with whom Evelyn had been involved, perhaps the true father of her children, whose parentage has been questioned, including little Peter, who ended up dead. Maybe the money was a small price to keep the truth from seeing the light of day. As all the players are gone, we'll never know what really happened. You know, it's there was a lot of mafia back then in Hamilton. Sure. Maybe there was something... Or maybe it was just a government official. Yeah. I mean, uh, I did sort of skip over something in <laughs> in the, my writing. Okay. And one of the things was that Evelyn had kept a little black book. Oh. And in her little black book, she had the names of men who she claimed she'd slept with. Okay. And some of the men in that little black book were prominent members of Hamilton society. Okay. Also, when questioned by the Crown... Mm-hmm. about who these men were, Evelyn turned, looked at the judge, and said, well, his son is <laughs> one of them. Wow. And that's when the judge said, well, this will not be admissible. <laughs> this book will not be admissible. Interesting. So there is some little bit of intrigue here. And protecting themselves up in the corridors of power. Exactly. Evelyn served over a decade in prison before being released on parole in 1958. She changed her name, remarried, and disappeared. It's unclear what happened to her. However, it's safe to say she's deceased today, as she'd be over 100 years old. Um, interestingly, a lady who used to moderate for the Yumberyard, Yannick, she worked in an old folks' home. She believed, she and her co-workers, that Evelyn Dick was one of the clients there. Okay. Interesting. She she was never able to prove it, but mm. she said it, the likeness was uncanny mm. and this woman was odd. So anyway, Evelyn's story lived on beyond her conviction, release, and subsequent disappearance. Her life and crimes have become the subject of numerous artistic interpretations. A play, a TV drama, and a noir musical were all created based on her life. Fans of the notorious killer could even buy merchandise featuring slogans like the fastest way to a man's heart is through his torso and love you to pieces. Love you to pieces. Oh dear. In the world of music, the punk band, the Forgotten Rebels, dedicated a song to Evelyn in their 1989 album. The song referenced that old skipping rhyme with the chorus asking, how could you, Mrs. Dick? The Forgotten Rebels. Yeah. I used to listen to them when I was a teenager. You did? Yeah. So did they have a song that I might have heard, or was it just sort of an oh, Ontario God. thing? What did they sing? It's like Teenage Head. Yeah, it might, it, they, might have been, they might have been sort of more like regional, right? Sure. Another Hamilton musician interested in the case, Mark McNeil, also wrote a song about Evelyn Dick, and he too referenced that famous Skipping Diddy's refrain. 
and you'll find links to videos of both songs in the show notes. So what a crazy story. If it weren't true, I wouldn't believe it. I'm not making light of John Dick's murder or that of little Peter White, but the names, though. The story is about a man named Dick with one testicle. The investigating cop was named Wood. The coroner was named Crack, and the pathologist was named Deadman. <laughs> so fun. It's crazy. This case reminded me of a post-World War II version of the more recent Casey and Kaylee Anthony story. So a refresher, Casey Anthony was a woman from Florida who was charged with the murder of her two-year-old daughter, Kaylee Anthony, in 2008. Throughout the investigation and trial, Casey was found dishonest, making inconsistent and false statements about her actions and her daughter's whereabouts. She claimed that a babysitter had kidnapped Kaylee, but the evidence showed that Casey had fabricated the story and the phantom babysitter didn't even exist. Casey also lied about her employment, stating that she worked for a company that didn't exist. And additionally, she was caught stealing money from her friend and using her friend's car without permission. Despite the evidence of her dishonesty, Casey was found not guilty of murder, but was convicted of four counts of lying to law enforcement. So Evelyn Dick is kind of a, I don't know, she, she sounds a lot like Casey Anthony, just making stuff up and just weird background and like just all kind that. of inherently dishonest yeah 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 like weirdly like oh well this child is is cramping my style so so, so let's so move on let's move on and be rid of it very strange and that's it for dark poutine episode 262 the hamilton the hamilton torso murder how could you mrs dick how could you mrs dick i don't know That's right, it's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Okay, it is time for voicemail. Uh, let's have a listen. We've got one this week, so let's forge forth. Hey, uh, Mike and Matthew, this is Laura. Um, I'm in Colorado right now, and I grew up in the Boston area, so I'm one of your U.S. listeners. I really love your show. Um, I wanted to call and say thank you for being so honest about your struggles with addiction. Um, <clears throat> I am a person who's on the other side of that, meaning that there's a person in my life who struggles with addiction, has upended my life because of it. And it's really hard for me to have compassion for people who struggle with that. So when you have accountability for that, and you share that with us, it really helped me to remember the human inside. So I just want to say thank you for that. And um, yeah, go shit in your hat, kid. Bye. Yeah, like we mentioned earlier in the episode, uh, alcoholism, addiction are is a family disease, and it affects the people around the person who is uh, using or drinking. Yeah. So it's a, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's hard to have compassion for somebody you, you think is just like, well, why don't they stop? I love them. Why don't they stop? Like, I really love this person. Why don't they stop? Well, they love you too. They just can't stop. They yeah. cannot. It's, it's not about, it's not about that you don't love them enough or they don't love you enough. It's that this person is sick. They have a disease. 
it is an actual disease. So, uh, yeah. At the same time, you have to look after yourself. Sure. So you, you know the old story, Mike, that goes, um, man says to a woman, um, if I started drinking again, would you still love me? Mm -hmm. And she said, I'd still love you. I'd miss you, but I'd still love you. There you go. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's the thing. Um, you know, take care of number one. That is, that is far and away the best thing that you can do in that situation is if, if that person is violent or dishonest, stealing from you. Or destroying your life. You're, destroying your you're, life in any your way. Your economic life, your yeah. family life. Exactly. Yeah. Being not there is probably the best thing for both of you. you you've, you've got to look after yourself before you can look after anybody else. Exactly. RuPaul says that. Really? How the hell are you going to love somebody else when you can't love yourself? <laughs> <laughs> they say that at the end of every show. I have not watched that show. Yeah, you got to watch. RuPaul's Drag Race. They even have like Drag Race in Belgium now. And uh, the a Canadian drag queen from Quebec mm -hmm. named Rita Bega. Mm -hmm. <laughs> is the is the host of uh, a Drag Race Belgium. It's kind of fun. Okay. Yeah, Rita Bega. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. It's time for some patrons. Matthew, we've got a few this week. Nice. First up, from Madison, Wisconsin, Christy Brady. Christy Brady. Madison, Wisconsin. Whenever I think of Wisconsin, I think of Cheese and right. Ed Gein. Who's Ed Gein? Matthew doesn't listen to the old episodes of the show. Anyway, Ed Gein was a, a killer. Okay. And a very strange man who uh, essentially made things out of skin. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that was before me. Yeah, Eddie Gein. Eddie Gein. But, uh, yeah, so Christy Brady, what does she do there in Madison, Wisconsin? Wisconsin. She makes leather lamps. <laughs> wow, I didn't expect that to happen. And the name of her shop is Bean There Done That. <laughs> or Gein There Done Gein That. The, Gein There Done That. <laughs> Oh no. Uh, thank you, Christy. There's a, yes, thank you. There's a really <laughs> terrible movie about Ed Gein. Uh, I can't remember what it's called right now, but it, it doesn't re it isn't really about Ed Gein. It's like a, a dramatization and okay. they, they, the last name they use is Bean. Bean? Yeah. Instead of Gein. So it's like very obvious that it's him. But is, anyway. Does Rowan Atkinson play the character? No. <laughs> Can you imagine? Mr. Bean playing Gein. It's like Mr. Gein. Just call it Mr. Gein. Mr. Gein. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Christy. We really appreciate that. Um, oh, look, another sort of horror-related thing. So from Crystal Lake, Illinois, Crystal Lake, yeah. Friday the 13th, we have Eli Muzinski. Eli Musinski. Hello, Eli. Yes, Eli. And what does Eli do at Crystal Lake, Illinois? I, I think he's... A camp counselor? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course he's a camp counselor. 
Um, and uh, does so when I was a camp, we, you and I both have done that. I Joe. was a camp counselor. Yeah, me too. What was your sort of specialty when you were a camp counselor? Because I know they had, you know, you had to make sure the kids were okay, but then there were other things like you were tasked with through the day. Was there anything like that for you? Nature director. Oh, nature director. Yep. I was the archery instructor, although wow. I had never touched a bow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, I learned, uh, probably it took it like 30 minutes. It took a 30 minute lesson from another one of the camp counselors there. And then I was the archery. We didn't, we didn't have archery. Yeah. And we shouldn't have had because the, the kids were not, uh, but I used to do fun safe. things like take rope mm -hmm. and tie it and then blindfold everyone. You'd follow the rope and then you'd have to guess the type of tree from the bark or the shape of the leaves. Oh, cool. Blindfolded. Yeah. We used to do fun. Or on days where I just couldn't think of something, we'd just watch the clouds and see say like what shapes we saw <laughs> we learned to make black powder gunpowder when i was a kid too you at boys yours wasn't a christian summer camp was yes it? it was wow when you're like guns and archery and stuff no archery was at the 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 christian camp okay but then uh uh guns and gunpowder was at boy scouts okay yeah so anyway, thank you, Eli. And, Thanks, uh, Eli. What does Eli's specialty, like if he's a camp, camp counselor, I wonder what his specialty is with the kids. Is he like the chef? Canoeing. Or, oh, canoeing. Yes. There you go. On that water. On Crystal Lake. Yeah. Where Jason's going to pop out with his weird <laughs> spriggly hair. And Eli knows how to hit him with a paddle. <laughs> Just bash him on the yeah. head. Boom. Yeah. Well, yeah, oh, well. Uh, okay. Next, we have... Someone from Ireland. Okay. Ireland. Very nice. I, so th I thought all the Irish over here in Vancouver. <laughs> a lot are. Half my friends are Irish. Wow. Well, this one is from Carlingford, Carlingford in Ireland. Okay. And her name is Amy Todd. Hello, Amy Todd. Amy Todd from Carlingford. I wonder how close that is to County Cork, because that is where my family is from. Uh, I thought your family was from the East Coast. <sighs> My dad's family is from Ireland originally, like heritage wise. Okay. So. Oh. <laughs> what, what do you mean? Oh. <laughs> the Irish always laugh at how everyone in Canada and America think they're Irish. I'm, I don't think I'm Irish. <laughs> My DNA says I am. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Carlingford looks like it is all oh, way on the other. Uh, uh, yeah, it's almost Northern Ireland. Okay. So it's like the Northern part of Southern, yeah. It's the Northern part of Ireland. So okay. anyway, just, uh, yeah. So not even close to okay. Cork, not even remotely close. That's where my friend Alan Burns is from, County Cork as well. Okay. Alan Burns. <laughs> and I used to sit across from him at Shaw when we worked at, at the, or, I used to sit across from him at the telecom that I worked for and I would just go, Alan, 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 all day like that. Just to be annoying. Yes. So, anyway. So what does Amy do? I don't know what Amy does there in Ireland. Maybe sweaters, knit sweaters? No, or? I think she um, was one of the producers on the show Dairy Girls. Dairy Girls? Yeah. I do love that show. It's that fantastic. is really funny. Yeah. I, you know, I prefer... Do, do you want to piss off an Irish friend? No. Call it London Dairy Girls. Oh, no. No, I'm not going to do that. Doesn't go down well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
No, I'm not going to do that. I did take the piss. It was funny. Yeah. I got slapped. <laughs> I love a lot of the UK shows. One of my favorites is Father Ted. Do you, have you seen Father Ted? Uh, yes. Yeah. It's, it's so, so funny. And, uh, like <laughs> the, the old drunk priest in the, in the manse, just like sitting there and just every once in a while he'll pipe up with arse, drink, <laughs> girls. <laughs> just almost just like a nervous tick. Yes, exactly. <laughs> anyway, we're moving on to Donut Money Donors and we have one this week. And her name is Becky Maves, and Becky is from Welland, Ontario. Okay. Well, thank you, Becky. What does Becky do there in that darn place, Welland? Where is Welland in relation to where you grew up? Up and to the right. Up and to the right. So, Becky... Uh, unlike uh, JFK's headshot, which made his head go back and to the left. You're horrible. <laughs> I don't know why I thought about that. That is so horrible. Becky drives a longboat on the Welland Canal. Well, that's kind of cool. Yeah, long, it, longboat tours on the Welland Canal. Have you ever been on one? In the UK, yes. Okay, so there's a Welland, surprise, there's a Welland Canal in the UK. Oh, no, well. no, I mean on a longboat, not on the Okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> there's usually uh, a matching place in the UK. Inevitably there is. Inevitably. But anyway, so thank you, Becky. And uh, stay safe whilst you're driving your longboat. Yes. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening, and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that's it for Dark Routine this week. Thank you, folks. And don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Because there's too many of those. Too many what? Bad apples. Well, you know what one bad apple does. Spoils a whole bunch. It really does. Hi. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now, she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.